Welcome to Book to Wear. Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snud, and this is actually our uh, episode number two in the lazy summer of podcasting, where, Rob, did you read anything this week? I watched a lot of um, old, scary movies, but I did not read. I read nothing, like literally nothing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I did watch Near Dark again, though. That was kind of cool. That was almost like reading something. Oh, oh, wait. And I watched an anime show, and I read all the subtitles. <laughs> That's kind of like reading. It's kind of like reading. <laughs> I feel can like I, I read something this, with Can I tell you about this anime show that I watched? Um, yes. So, so the, um, I guess the American translation is Everyday Life with Monster Girls. And uh, it takes place in the near future where we've kind of accepted that there are monsters. And there's a monster, like a, like a student exchange program where like a monster family takes a human. And then a human family takes a monster girl. And monster girls are half um, woman and half monster. So this first episode that I watched is about a girl who is a snake, like a serpent from the waist down, and hijinks ensue. Uh, yeah, that's I didn't watch that. Yeah, this is why I'm not reading anything this right. summer. Anime, <laughs> TV shows. At any rate, so this week um, we have a guest. Um, the guest should be familiar to book the listeners. It's uh, Paul Tremblay. He is the author of A Head Full of Ghosts. He's also the author of the novels The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and Floating Boy and the Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which was co-written with Stephen Graham Jones. And I will amend this to say he also appeared in the book anthology before all these wonderful things happened to him. Um, I don't know about all of them. No, definitely not before all of them. Well, it, it kind of smack dab in the middle. Yeah, I guess that's probably a little more accurate. Yeah, I would say that we are bl- a blip for a blip on his radar but anyway um <clears throat> we did for for book to listeners or new book to listeners we did a review of swallowing a donkey's eye which i want to say is around episode 101 i'm doing that off the top of my head so i hope i'm right about that and then um not too long after that we also had an interview with paul um and then we've actually met paul in person we hung out in boston and stuff like that so paul's been in our lives for a long time we're very happy for that he's listening right now so i'm trying to make it as weird as possible uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a really nice guy tell him he's a really nice guy <laughs> um i guess that's it paul thanks for uh listening while we talked about you and thanks for coming back onto the podcast sure thank you uh i like to think of the book anthology as the booster seat uh, that did happen halfway through whatever this is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, I was exactly right. We reviewed Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, episode 101, uh, co-hosted by uh, Sean P. Ferguson. We have to, if Paul's on the episode, we have to talk oh, yeah. about Sean Ferguson. So, Right. Yeah. And we did a, a review podcast once, too. It was... Uh, <sighs> gun Machine. Warren Ellis' Gun Machine, yeah. 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 I remember you just not liking that book in a, in a very serious way. Yeah, an aspect of that book, definitely. So maybe I'm not the nicest guy in the world anymore. (laughs) Warren Ellis can take it, though. He can handle it, I think. Yeah, he doesn't need, he definitely doesn't need our approval, but I don't know about yours. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Hey, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about kind of head full of, uh, about head full of ghosts, kind of in your own words. All right, sure. Um. You know, it's funny because I, I can sort of re- remember uh, this book for me was like one of those rare like eureka moments where it sort of like hits you like out of the blue and sort of quickly. Uh, if you don't mind a little bit of preamble, I was working on this other book and uh, I happened to stumble across this book of essays um, published by Centipede Press. And it's in their studies of the horror film series. And you know, it's this huge book about uh, The Exorcist, all kinds of interviews with the cast and actors and a bunch of critical essays about the movie itself. Um, and man, when I was reading those, it just sort of occurred to me, geez, no one's really uh, done like an update of The Exorcist. Like you, you, we've certainly seen a lot of, um, we've seen a bunch of literary zombie novels, like Colton Whitehead, Zone One, you know, comes to mind. You know, the vampire's always around. You know, we've seen a bunch of werewolf updates as well. It's like no one, I mean, no one at least book-wise or literary-wise, had done anything that, that I know, uh, that I was aware of anyway, uh, with a possession novel. So I said, all right, so what, how, would, how would I write a possession novel? And sort of the thing that sort of occurred to me is I'm going to write a, uh, a secular exorcism novel, you know, whatever the heck that means. So I was just going to try to approach it from a really skeptical uh, place, at least from the starting point. So if I'm being obnoxious, I'm calling it my postmodern skept- uh, secular exorcism novel. 
If I'm actually trying to sell books, I just say it's an update of The Exorcist. Um, that has to be, I've never read The Exorcist. Um, I've seen the movie and I'm familiar with kind of, you know, just how, how you know, legendary and revered it is. It's got to be a little intimidating to tackle. And that may be why it hadn't been done in a long time. Um, how do you, I mean, like, oh, how do you look at that and, and just kind of embrace that I am going to do the next, you know, the, the next thing in, in kind of in that same line? Is that, that's got to be a little intimidating, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the way that to keep it uh, for me, to keep it from being intimidating, once I had the idea of the blog post within the, the novel that was going to be expressly, you know, telling the reader, hey, we know this is what you've seen before in a certain way. I mean, that was really freeing. I mean, that actually took a lot of my anxiety away and allowed me to give myself permission to just to roll around in all of my favorite and not so favorite sort of tropes of not only, you know, exorcism or possession stories, but, you know, horror in general. Um, it's funny. Uh, I felt a lot more anxiety with a little sleep. Uh, my narcoleptic detective novel. So, um, one, you know, I didn't really grow up. I mean, I've read a bunch of crime fiction um, and I've written some, obviously. But, um, man, I mean, I, I grew up on horror. I mean, uh, horror has been a part of my life since, you know, some of my first memories. I can remember watching this crazy show called Creature Double Feature just on Saturday afternoon. So, I mean, I feel like I felt I could do this with horror. And, you know, I felt a lot more nervous trying to do it with uh, the crime genre with a little sleep. Well, you had to follow up all those other narcoleptic, de narcoleptic <laughs> detective novels that had been out, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, they're a tough bunch. <laughs> no, but even like, you know, it's funny. I'll never forget reading like the first line of the LA Times review of The Little Sleep. It was something to the effect of, you know, Paul Tremblay is either the bravest guy or the or the stupidest guy in the world. Uh, and luckily, you know, it was a positive review because my heart was in my throat when I read that, you know, because I named my book, you know, basically The Big Sleep. Um, and again, because, you know, I was sort of, I basically tried to teach myself the, the crime slash noir hardboiled genre when I had the idea for that book. And I didn't have to teach myself for a head full of ghosts. You know, it's been my you know, horror, my love, mostly love, but love-hate relationship with horror has been a lifelong thing. Uh, we'll definitely come back to your your relationship with, with horror because that was something that we were going to ask you about. I have a quick question um, regarding, because when we reviewed the book, uh, so anybody that heard about the book through us, uh, we didn't spoil the ending or anything, and we're not going to do it here. But um, in in I do recommend your book to to people who ask me for recommendations, and I did get a couple people's responses back. And without kind of telling you right now, have you what, what's your general response been to how you ended the book? Have you gotten a lot of feedback on that? Um, uh, most people have been like, you know, the ending is sort of made it for them, which is which was kind of was kind of hoping. I mean, I, without giving anything away. I don't think it's giving anything away. I've been telling people that, you know, I really wanted, as opposed to the movie The Exorcist, I wanted sort of the worst, you know, the real horror to be what happens. I mean, there's horror throughout the novel, but like the most sort of the ultimate, the climax of the horror is what happens to the family after, you know, after the attempted exorcism and they're essentially abandoned. Um, you know, to me, that was, that's, that's the ultimate sort of horror of the story. So, um, yeah, I think most people have sort of reacted to that. I have sort of, you know, there's some people who, I guess, uh, I've been a little surprised that some people thought the ending was, uh, I don't know, just like fizzled. I mean, I think that's been a, a small major, uh, minority just when I'm stalking on Goodreads. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I, I don't know. So far, it's been, you know, I've been very, I've been very pleased. I think people have been very, um, very nice about the book in general and, yeah, I don't know, I'm stumbling around because I don't want to give too much about the ending. But to me, the ending is, I don't know, the ending is the book. It's the reason why I wanted to write it. That's that's kind of what I was hoping to hear from you because I did get, I got the one person that did that, that kind of the minority response that you were talking about uh, uh, when they told me they were done reading it. And I was, it had, it had this moment of panic where I was like, oh shit, is that what people think about this book? And then, I, and so that's the reason I had to ask you that question was to like, you know, um, reassure myself that that wasn't that that this well, was a, an anomaly right well i mean you have to remember one out of every 20 people are uh psychopaths and do not have the ability to to feel empathy for other people so that's what i tell myself is the one out of 20 people who don't get the ending of the novel they're clearly psychopaths <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Fuck, I have to I have to use that. That's gonna make my daily life so much easier. Fucking Rob's printing out a five percenter <laughs> shirt for me to wear. <laughs> it, it makes your life harder though, because then you don't know. You're always, man, is that one right there? And then I don't know, I, I think about that too much. Like, oh shit, is that the, the, the psychopath? Right. Um Talking about the book as well, one of the things that, and I think one of the strongest, I, I, it's a fucking strong book, but one of the strongest things for me was how believable and how well that the children were written. Um, Mary uh, was just adorable and it felt very real. So is there um, a specific kind of preparation you had to do or or something to write kids, or is that just something that you feel comfortable writing? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think... Um I'd say a little bit of both. I, I do feel comfortable writing kids. I, uh, a ton of my short fiction has, has been from the point of view of, of children, uh, especially after I had kids. You know, definitely, I, you know, without psychoanalyzing myself, I know a lot of my stories are about dealing with the anxieties of parenthood or what it means to be a parent, especially from the point of view of, of a child. And I don't know. I mean, it seems kind of lame to say, but you know, even though, you know, we're all growing older, I still feel like a kid. I mean, to me, I think that's like the big secret of adulthood is that you know there are no adults it's it's surprising to me because i used to think about what am i going to be like as, a, as an adult all the time when i was a kid i remember thinking that vividly um and you know now that i'm here it's it's like man i'm like the same kid just bigger hairier and now uh then i'm older a lot achier <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I also had you know i will say and you know the book there's three dedications in the in the book and one of them is to my daughter emma who was essentially Mary's age at the time of writing the novel, you know, so she certainly informed that character a great deal, but, uh, but uh, you know, I took stuff from all kinds of sources, but Emma is certainly, um, you know, a big part of that character. So much so that when my wife read the, you know, the first rough draft, she was in tears for like a day. <laughs> I had to tell her, no, it's not Emma. Don't worry about it. And actually my wife, Lisa was very, very happy Rob, to hear that someone else was driven to tears. Uh, and I was happy too. I don't know if that makes me like a sadistic person. <laughs> God, no, just yeah, that was there was some. It hit me in the feels. I guess is is yeah. good. I'm glad that yeah, I'm glad that you like that. <laughs> While we're on the subject of preparation for characters, <clears throat> I had trouble kind of wording how to ask this question. So, um, Mary is definitely an, an unreliable narrator. Um, as evident, I mean, she basically says it herself. So when you're right. writing a reliable narrator, whatever the opposite of that is, right? I would imagine that the checks and balances are you just make sure that that the character stays stays true and level throughout the story. How do you make a character unreliable enough? I mean, is there a different process? Um, yeah. Well, first, I mean, just even from the choice of doing it first person. I mean, if you're going to start with a first person narrative, it is inherently unreliable. Um, you know, you're not using an omniscient narrator. You, you're filtering everything through this character who has their own sets of biases and experiences, and, and it's going to get filtered no matter what. You know, they're not going to be able to jump into other characters' heads and know what they're thinking. So there's inherent unreliability with the first person. Uh, and with, uh, with a head full of ghosts, you know, I wanted to try to make it as unreliable as possible, but not like that she was necessarily holding stuff back from us. So I tried to add those other sort of filters and layers to the narrative. Like she's telling the story to, you know, she's telling the story to a biographer, um, but her account has clearly been compromised, you know, just by time for one, you know, pr uh, potentially compromised by the, the trauma that she experienced. You know, that certainly affects our memories. I mean, it's been, um, and thirdly, and just has been compromised by everyone else's sort of opinions, the media, you know, the TV show, you know, what she's seen is, is going to affect her own account. So, you know, I did go into it thinking I wanted to add those layers to make it, to make her, you know, as unreliable as possible, but not make it her fault that she's unreliable, if that makes sense. It does. And one of the things that um, I go back to, and I don't know how much we talked about this in the actual review, but it, it's been on my mind because every once in a while you read a, you read a book and I kind of get, I mean, I get it's fiction. I enjoy it. I know what it is. But I kind of go back to that, you know, here we are documenting a conversation from 20 years ago and I can't remember shit I talked about. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So like there was yeah. that part where she's like, hey, I know this was a, what was in the TV show, but here's how I remember it. And that's one of the things that kind of spoke to me as a, as a reader that's a little critical sometimes of the the perfect memory scenario, you know. So that was that was done really well. I was just wondering 
you know, what the process is to, to make sure that, like you said, that there's enough layers that you're unreliable enough to be a genuine unreliable narrator versus, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, right. Thanks. I mean, I was definitely, that was one of the, the worries um, was like how much, you know, she was, I wanted to make sure the reader knew that this was her remembering, remembering and I guess filtering what it was like when she was eight years old and not an actual eight year old speaking. Um, Cause I didn't think I could do it that way, you know, to go the other direction because it would be too hard to, you know, to be able to sort of parse the adult stuff that was happening around her. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think I'm actually a lot like you, Liv, that I, I really don't have a lot of memory of my childhood, for, except for things that were sort of really traumatic. So I, I kind of comfort myself by thinking, well, I mean, I think if this had happened to me, I would remember a lot of this. And um, I have met people who do have like an amazing memory for what happened to them as a child. Um, and thirdly, I do think, given that, you know, Mary was exposed to, you know, the television show and all sort of the different accounts to what happened to her, you know, I do think it was realistic that, you know, she would, if she didn't have the actual memories, she actually would sort of construct them um, because we all do that. I mean, it's, it's surprising how much we do construct our own memories. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a good point, too, because <clears throat> I know stories even from when I was in like my early 20s where when I hear a friend telling it, I'm like, you got so much stuff wrong, you know, like the, a different yeah. person is doing the thing that some, you know, um, uh, so yeah, and I, I fucking, my whole childhood, I think is just like a total blank, like, but I, I guess, um, and what was kind of when we were reviewing the book, I think someone set me straight by saying that, um, if something this traumatic or this crazy happened in your life, you'd probably have more of a pool of memories from it. So, um, right. yeah, so it all sticks pretty perfectly for me. It's all within the realm of possibility, the things that she remembers, which is great. Um, yeah, thanks. I think we're going to kind of navigate away from Headful of Ghosts a little bit. Uh, okay. Just to come back to, you said, I grew up on horror. Now, I listened to your uh, interview with This Is Horror, which was great, by the way, and I recommend um, thanks. anybody who's interested in learning more about Paul can check that out as well. Uh, it's episode 47 of This Is Horror. Um, and you guys talk, like, it was like I was listening to a different person because, and I'm sure that from my perspective, it's, you know, we met you. We um, we read you know swallowing a donkey's eye, and you know we knew about the other you know more crimey kind of stuff, but didn't really see like the the horror side of Paul. So when I was listening to this interview, I was like, oh man, this guy's got a whole other side to him that I've never never seen before. So you said I grew up on horror. Um, how big how big of a part of your life is it? Is it like is it kind of like your your passion and your love and stuff? Uh, definitely. Um, and I feel like I've. I feel like I've sort of not, not returned to it, not that I necessarily went away from it, but I, I have to say, I did feel weird. Like when the little sleep came out, especially in 2009, I was being introduced. Oh, here's crime writer, Paul Tremblay. I'm like, who's that? <laughs> who's crime writer, Paul Tremblay? And I was even telling people, you know, I wrote the little sleep with sort of a horror attitude, you know, which is sort of like a bullshit line, I guess, kind of, but I kind of felt that was true. Um, Cause I got my start writing almost exclusively horror short stories. Um, Back, you know, I sold my first story in uh, 2000, you know, to a pretty, to a, a very small, like, um, online market. So, you know, for, you know, Little Sleep was 2009. So for, you know, like, my first seven years of seriously writing, I was, you know, writing horror short stories. And then I had the idea for the, for the Little Sleep. You know, and I've done, you know, tried to do some different stuff here and there. Um, and when I first started writing, you know, I wore, like, I am a horror writer as a badge. And so... It was important for me at some point to be like, okay, um, I'm not going to force every story idea that I have into a horror framework and just sort of let the story be what it is. So when I did that, I mean, it was definitely very freeing. I never would have written A Little Sleep, obviously, or Swallowing a Donkey's Eye. But at the same time, I do think it made me push away from horror subconsciously a little bit. Uh, but I've certainly never left that headspace um, or my interest level as well. Um, you know, my, my younger brother is one of my best, is also one of my best friends. I'm very fortunate that, I, you know, we have that kind of relationship. And, you know, horror is one of the things that we bond over. I mean, when we were kids, you know, we just, we loved Godzilla. We loved watching horror movies. And even though I was the older brother, I was the scaredy cat. Like, I couldn't watch the crazy stuff my brother was watching. He was watching, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and every horror movie he could, he could see. I mean, so, I mean, for us, that's a big part of our childhood. Like, we 
we randomly call each other up and we'll leave messages or, uh, you know, I've, you guys seen the movie Poltergeist, you know, the original one? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the scene where Craig T. Nelson is, you know, overacting, you forgot to, you know, you only move the headstones and he's screaming. You know, we've, you know, I've like just taped that off of YouTube and left that as like a random message, just, you know, goofy stuff like that. So, I don't know, it's something that, you know, I grew up with and, you know, I can almost like mark <laughs> childhood milestones with, you know, sort of different memories of a horror movie or, or being frightened of something. So, yeah, I mean, it's always been an interest. It's always been a, you know, it's always been around. I don't, this wasn't part of our original um, question agenda, but now that you've <laughs> mentioned horror movies, um, are you still watching current horror movies, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I don't get to see as, as, mm-hmm. as many as like some people, but yeah, I definitely do. Um, what would you recommend for a recent great horror movie to someone, or is there anything recent that, that you think, you know, people should watch? Oh, definitely. I, um, uh, there's one movie that I own two DVD copies of. I keep one for myself and I keep one to proselytize with, to, to lend out to people, to make them watch it. Uh, and it's an Australian movie called Lake Mungo. Um, and it came out, geez, like 2008, maybe. And it, but it's a very subtle, very quiet I mean, besides being, you know, having sort of creepy horror elements to it, I mean, it's really about uh, grief. And it's just, it, I think it's an amazing movie. It's my favorite. I think it's my favorite movie of the last 10 years. So I think it's on Netflix streaming right now. So if you want to see Lake Mungo, and Lake Mungo is like a, it's a fake documentary about a 13, 14 year old girl who drowns in a lake. And a lot of it is about her family trying to cope with that tragedy. Um and another recommendation would be, I'm a really big fan of uh, Ben Wheatley, the British director. Uh, his movie, Kill List, I think you guys would really dig. It's, it's, it's that a whole... movie was batshit crazy. Oh, yeah. It's a totally <laughs> insane mix of, you know, you know, uh, like, you know, hard crime noir. And then it just goes into left field with some uh, folk satanic horror. I have never seen a movie go that far off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just is that. And I, it was very enjoyable and, and very... um different for that particular yeah. for that particular reason that you mentioned that it just changes genres you know, you know two-thirds of the way in or whatever completely changes to something insane and for me it was one of those movies that when i watched it, i was like wow that was pretty cool i'm not sure it totally worked but every day that passes i find myself thinking about it and i, I find myself oh li- liking the movie more and more and more um i'm you know at some point i'm gonna have to sit down for a second viewing of it um now, I'll just throw out one more, too. Another sort of quiet movie. Kill List is not quiet, but sort of in the vein of uh, Lake Mungo. I was a huge fan of uh, Take Shelter, the Michael Shannon movie. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that. Again, it's another sort of quiet, subtle movie. And Michael Shannon's character is 35 years old. When his mom was 35, she uh, suffered a psychotic break and is now schizophrenic. And you know, he's this total, like, uh, blue-collar worker in a you know small town in Ohio or something like that. And he starts having these visions that the world is going to end and he's not sure if he's having this, uh, his psychotic break or if this is actually a portent for, you know, some horrific, almost supernatural ending to the world. Um, and it's a very subtle, very quiet movie with an ending that, you know, you would certainly, or people I know, I, I like discussing and debating what actually happens at the end. So those are, those are three that certainly, you know, pop to mind. Oh, and I should mention the Babadook too. I love the Babadook. Uh, I, yeah, I have to agree with you. That was, uh, yes, that was, uh, that was, yeah. I don't know what, the, what else to say about that. That movie was just brilliant. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought just visually it was stunning, just how it looked, like uh, like this weird cracked fairy tale. I thought it was an incredibly brave movie and how it portrayed uh, the mom and her feelings toward her children. You know, speaking as a parent, you know, every parent thinks that way about their child. I mean, these dark, horrible thoughts, you know, they sneak in. And you feel like such a horrible person for doing it. So I thought it was incredibly brave to portray Sir Parenthood that way. Um, and every time I see people say, oh, that little kid is so annoying. I just want to punch him. I'm like, that's the point. Yeah. You, um, but anyways, yeah, so I have four of them. They, uh, I'm glad I remember the Babadook last minute there. Awesome. See, this is our lazy summer of podcasting. This is a cheap way for me to get some movie recommendations, something to do with all the extra time I have on my hands. Oh, no, talking about movies like that, that's fun stuff, definitely. See, you guys get into the, <clears throat> I'm like the, I'm like the novice when it comes to all that stuff, because you guys get into like the more independent, uh, less mainstream stuff, and I, I've been, 
I've been trying to watch more horror recently, but it's like, oh, I never watched the screamed mo- scream movies, so that's yeah. what I did the end of the other day and stuff like that. So, um, you guys dig deep. I'm very surface <laughs> level. I feel. But I, I had to bite my tongue when you're doing the introduction because Liv mentioned Near Dark, which is just a classic, an amazing movie. Yeah, it, it holds up really well story wise, but they realize how bad the dialogue is, and I don't oh, really? remember thinking I, that when that. I was you know sixteen or eighteen or whatever when I first saw it. The dialogue's yeah, terrible. Okay, well, I have to admit I haven't seen it in a really long time, but my memories of the movie are like, uh, definitely enjoyed it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I still liked it, but yeah, I just I thought, oh, some of this is a little rough. Okay. <laughs> well, and, and as far as breaking in, uh, if if you ever hear David James Keaton on an episode, there are no rules, so. You could have just started talking in the middle of our introduction for for future episodes if you want. Oh, okay. Just walk all over us. You can. That's that's no problem. Um, <clears throat> taking turns again because apparently that's what I do. Um, you, I, I saw we saw on Facebook you posted that someone had actually reached out to you um, about um, a, a person in their family going through something similar to, or what they thought might be similar to what went on in your book, Headful of Ghosts. Is there is there any more information from that, or pretty much just what you posted on Facebook? Yeah, pretty much what I posted. I mean, you know, just the the first post was, "Hey, your book sounds really interesting." You know, something like this is happening to my niece, and you know, and my first impulse was like, "This is sort of it's like some sort of gag." You know, and I have no idea; it still could be. Um, but you know, I felt like, "Geez, you know, this is terrible." I hope you like the book. No, I felt like I had to say, "Geez." I hope your I hope your niece is seeing you know getting some sort of you know uh, counseling, you know first and foremost. Hope it ends better for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, hope you it. like the ending. Yeah, so that was a brief exchange. I figured that would be it, and then she was like, "Hey, I got the book, like really cheery. I can't wait to read it." Uh, and then the rest of it was, uh, she had a real bad uh, episode last night. You know, this evil thing she calls Max had, was in her. Or, you know, she was talking about Max. It was just it was so bizarre. Um, and as far as I can tell, it seems, I mean, it feels like, you know, just, you know, scoping out her Facebook name and, and whatnot, it'd be a pretty elaborate hoax slash, slash catfishing. I mean, I'm not going to go too far with it, but uh, yeah, it is a little strange. Maybe fodder for a really metafictional follow-up. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Getting catfished with a possession story. I never thought about that. That's good. Erase that. Erase that. I'm saving it. Yeah, we'll cut that. And I hate to be the one that that brings this up because I don't want to be the catalyst for it. But now that I think about it, the type of book that you wrote, I mean, could could draw some 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 people to you. You know, I mean, maybe some people who aren't exactly in their right minds more so than the narcoleptic narcoleptic. I can't even say that word. Detective book. You know what I mean? Like you could. Yeah. No. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. I've certainly been expecting to hear from more sort of uh, stereotypically hardcore religious folks being upset with it. Because, um, I, I mean, it's not that, like, science or anybody is really painted in, in a, as having the answers in this book, but I certainly am pretty critical, I think, of um, the church in general and how it handles not only exorcism and mental illness, but also how it treats girls and women in general. Um, exorcism Live. I'm assuming that you've heard this is this is a thing. I did. I just uh, that's why I was when I was at the convention uh, this weekend. All sorts of people were posting it on my Facebook. I was like, oh man, I don't know. So I sent it to my uh, agent and publicist. Like, hey, what can you guys do about this? <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, thoughts on it? I mean, I, I guess. You know, I, I mean, I imagine that you love the story and you love the concepts in, in the book that you put. You almost you'd have to, especially deliver right. a, a product like you did. But for you, it was it was a fictional story. Um, oh, yeah. Do you have um, thoughts on, you know, somebody who maybe maybe is possessed or maybe is just mentally ill, kind of being portrayed in the same way characters were in your book? I mean, where they're that's being broadcast to the world. I know when you write, I'm not saying you're a supporter of that, right? But, Seeing something like that, how does that affect you as somebody who spent a lot of time, even if it was just in their own head, working on this? Um, I mean, I, I think it's bunk, totally, uh, for one. I mean, so, I mean, I certainly have empathy for uh, the person who's being treated for uh, or being having an exorcism applied to her, I guess is the way to say it, because I think, you know, they're suffering from, you know, some sort of mental illness. Um, 
I didn't do a ton of research in mental illness, but what I did find is, you know, all the different sort of shades of schizophrenia and some other illnesses that sort of present as schizophrenia. I mean, present that a lot of their symptoms will present as sort of your classic, almost Hollywood stereotype um, possession um, symptoms. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I read this announcement, really, my my <laughs> even though I love horror, my response was sort of disgust because. In that um, Centipede Press book that I mentioned, um, edited by Daniel Olson, there's a great sort of uh, investigative journalistic essay about uh, this, you know, journalist going back trying to find the original house of where the supposed exorcist, you know, that story, um, where it happened, and you know who supposedly inspired it. And he really, when he went back, he couldn't find the real people, and it really seemed like that it was all sort of faked and uh, faked to the point where like so, uh, the priest that performed it per, per, uh, the priest that supposedly performed the exorcism didn't exist. Um, it was just total sham. So, you know, in this TV show, they're performing an exorcism on the house. So I, I just assume it's going to be very cheesy. <clears throat> yeah. When I found out about the TV show, thinking about it in regards to just having read your book, I was thinking that in your book, the TV show is definitely not like a positive presence. No, definitely not. <laughs> and so my initial reaction was, oh, Paul's probably going to think this is like, it's kind of like this is the bullshit part, you know, the, the part of the book that was like, you know, a bullshit problem. Not bullshit how it was written, but like it right. was bu- in itself was bullshit. So I was thinking you probably wouldn't have like a super positive reaction to it. Yeah, definitely. No, and I mean, in the, and if it was like an attempted exorcism of a, of a person, I wouldn't want to watch that. I don't want to watch another person suffer, you know, sort of, you know, for my entertainment. It's an exploitation. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I, maybe that's maybe that's hypocritical of me to say since I'm sort of writing a, a book as entertainment. You know, where these people certainly suffer tremendously, but they're not real people suffering. So I don't know. I, I and that's not the have, point of the book. So right, it, I think no, you're covered. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's critical, and, and I, I feel like it's very critical of how Marjorie is sort of treated by the adults. You know, the adults make everything worse. Um, yeah, so no, the whole thing is be like, ah. But obviously, if I can sell some more books off of it, uh, <laughs> off of whatever, you know, TV exorcism, they're only applying it to a house. You can't hurt a house through that, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, it's on, like, Destination America. It's not like it's on, like, uh, NBC or something. I don't know. Only if it does really well, the next one will be. Right. Livius loves to say that Iron Man is producing the movie that's being adapted from your book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just, I don't even know there's a question there. There, you probably, <laughs> there isn't. It just says Iron Man you, producing Head Full yeah. of Ghosts. That's it. Well, so. I'll tell you two things. Uh, so when my uh, my siblings read the book, the response was like, oh, what's dad going to think? Yeah, I love my dad. He's, you know, a huge part of my life. And, you know, we have a great relationship. And for whatever reason, and I understand, like, when my siblings read my stuff, because I take so much from, I, I took a lot of stuff that happened in my family. Uh, or, you know, to my family and put it into this book. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, to me, it's clearly not anything having to do with my parents or my family. Um, in a weird way, I would say swallowing a donkey's eye is probably the most autobiographical thing I've ever written. <laughs> uh, even though obviously none of that stuff actually happened, but like the emotions that I sort of, the character struggle with in that book, to me, that was, I don't know, a way to sort of bury or buried the autobiography in there. So even though in this book, there's some like stuff I take from my parents, it's not them. So anyway, my, my brother was convinced that it was my dad. So when the, uh, when the deal with focus was announced and with Rob Downey Jr.'s production company, he just sent me a text and he said, dude, Iron Man's going to be our dad. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, it's not our dad, but sure. Maybe we'll make t-shirts. Iron Man is our dad. If he makes it, then definitely Iron Man is my dad. How, um, I guess, I guess the question is, um, and, and obviously I'm, I'm guessing elation and stuff, but I, I can't even understand. So the process is this, the rights were purchased. If I remember uh, before the book came out, right? So I'm assuming your agent gets a book, you get a book deal with somebody and then your agent immediately starts shopping around film rights, right? They're sending out copies of the book for people to read or something. Is that basically how it happens? Uh, yeah, that's how it, it can happen. We, I mean, uh, cause I have S- Steve Fisher from, um, uh, he's in, you know, he's in Los Angeles and he's, he's been uh, for years pitching the little sleep as a television show. And we've come close a couple times, but, 
you know, it's so hard. Obviously, uh, definitely. I mean, especially after 2008, when the economy tanked, Hollywood just doesn't uh, option as many as many books as they used to. So I, you know, I was fortunate to have sort of an LA agent in place already. Um, so when you know, I had full of those sold. Um, he was actually my agent. I think he, my literary agent, sent the book to Allegiance Theater. So they're the they're the other producers, and they're, they're actually the ones who did all the groundwork essentially. Um, the, uh, Allegiance took the book, and this was you know nine months before it's gonna be published. Took the book and started. Um, you know they found a couple of screenwriters that are attached to it, um, and then they they started pitching it around and found interest from Focus and TriStar and. I guess in between that, they've got the, the Team Downey production company interest. So, yeah, I mean, to me, the process is still sort of mystical and weird because, you know, I wasn't really in the loop for any of the, the, the pitching of it or really the timeline. It was just sort of, oh, <laughs> focus is interested. OK. And then, you know, in like three weeks, it was like a flurry of, of action that was you know definitely very exciting and, you know, is still very exciting. Um, so now I guess it starts the long wait because, you know, they have 18 months with their option and guess the next big thing is just to see what happens when the two screenplay guys, you know, do their thing. All right. So this is a question I, I, I think, um, I, I don't know, it's probably hard to answer publicly anyway, but I'm going to okay. go ahead and ask it anyway. Okay. So obviously I, I would imagine if it was my creation, I'd be really, really excited for a movie, but outside of the prospects of, you know, fame and fortune, um, what, what percentage of you is worried about where the story can be taken by by it being taken? This is your baby, right? Like right. you spent a long time on this. Is there a portion of you that that is concerned about like this could be a really shitty movie or <laughs> someone could really mishandle my story? Yeah, of course. I mean, anyone would be lying if they said otherwise. So, I mean, there's definitely that. But I'm definitely super excited. I mean, at the same time, because, you know, as a writer, um, you know, I'm I feel like I'm all about sort of influence. I'm very interested in influence and how it works and how it can be used. You know, and I've tried to never be shy about the works that influence my stuff. I mean, obviously with my first novel being titled uh, The Little Sleep, I mean, you couldn't get more obvious with your sort of influences on your sleeve. So to me, the idea of other people, you know, taking what I did and, you know, reshaping it to be something totally different because a film is completely different from a book. I mean, they're, they're written in two completely, I mean, the language of film and the language of of, of a written book are, are two different things. So, yeah, that part of me, which I hope is the most part of me, is just really excited. And hope, you know, hopefully it happens. You know, and if it does happen, I'll just be really excited to see, like, you know, what does someone else do, you know, through that lens of influence? But, you know, if it ends up being, like, the free save the day and, <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, if it ends up being bad, obviously, I would, I'd be bummed out. But, I mean, so far, everyone I've talked to really seems to have the spirit of the novel in mind. And, you know, and they're really excited about sort of the same parts of the book that I'm excited about. So, well, good. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a there'll be a cute dog that has an influence, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and, uh, and a funny sidekick. There'll be another teenage girl to tell jokes throughout the whole thing. So that's kind of you know what how I envision the transition of books to movies. No, we're really excited yeah. for you, and and obviously. Um, Whenever we like a, a book this much, I mean, seeing it get made into a movie or in some cases, you know, there's some TV shows in development or in production of things that I've read and loved. So as a, as yeah. a fan, it's a, it's a huge deal to, to be able to hope to see something like this come out. Yeah, no, thanks. Definitely. I mean, fingers are crossed. And, you know, if it doesn't happen, it's, you know, it's still been just super exciting to have the interest. And obviously, uh, you know, to be able to talk about it, it's just like, man, yeah. it's just so it's so surreal to have you know, these conversations and like. You know, just Robert Downey Jr.'s name come up. It's just, it's just weird. It still is. Um, you'll have to let us know how lunch with uh, with Robert Downey Jr. goes when <laughs> you know when it happens. Uh, um, I've, sure. I've, I've, I've asked for like uh, Jarvis as a part of my contract. You know, I think I need him <laughs> as sort of my desktop aid. Maybe just like the glove, like an Iron Man glove. <laughs> Doesn't even have to shoot like the full laser. Just give me like a, a sparkle at the end or something. You Damn totally it. have to write up like a list of requests that are just that weird and submit yeah. <laughs> publicly announced. This is what I want. Jarvis. I was going to do a Jarvis joke and you beat me to it. So, yeah. Yeah. so um, Shirley Jackson awards this, uh, this past weekend. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we had our ceremony. Uh, yeah. Geez. Just a few hours ago, 11 o'clock this morning. And yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, no, I'm very proud of, you know, certainly the work and the association that I have, uh, with the awards, uh, I've been blown away personally by 
how many people, you know, coming out of the woodwork that have, have been, you know, inspired by and are just huge fans of Shirley Jackson's work. Um, I've never failed to be surprised. Like you think, you know, at this convention that we have the award ceremony at is ReaderCon. And I would say ReaderCon is primarily more slanted towards fantasy and science fiction. And then maybe there's a little horror enclave. Um, and I never failed to be surprised by these other writers who I would never imagine, you know, uh, had read Shirley Jackson or was inspired in any way by Shirley Jackson. Just, oh, they absolutely adore her. And you can just tell by the way they talk about her books and stories. They still have this encyclopedic knowledge of her work. So, yeah, no, it's just, it's just, it's great to be a part of. We were just, um, I personally was just concerned and confused about Bird Box winning, yet again, failing to win an award. I don't get it. That's why I throw that out there. Yeah. Excuse me. That's kind of another one. There's not a question there. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not on the jury. You know, so, you know, we had five great jurors. They did an amazing job. I, I helped. I was sort of like the juror liaison. Like, I just sort of like, sort of keep them on track, make sure they get, you know, I helped. Joanne Cox is the administrator of the awards. Uh, she's a friend that lives locally in Boston. She does you know, just a heroic amount of work for the, for the awards. If she were to ever leave, the award would be done. <laughs> um, so I help her out, you know, with just trying to help you know, get the publisher's books. And sometimes they said, you know, just um, electronic files, you know, so I just served as sort of the go between for the jurors. And I know how much they read, how much work they put into it. Um, it happens every year, but I feel like this year they had even more reading than usual to do. And they, I thought they just did an amazing job. And I thought all the, the categories were really, really competitive and tough. And I think that's sort of reflected in, I think everything that won is just really amazing work. I mean, Bird Box losing to, to Jeff Vandermeer's novel, which, you know, it's been pretty much like a critical slam dunk pretty much uh, on every you know, major reviewer. And it's been, on, you know, already nominated, if not uh, won our award, obviously, but it's nominated for the World Fantasy Award as well. So well, Josh is going to have to write another book. <laughs> there you go. Better luck next time, kid. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Livius, before we got on, we were talking about the awards. And Livius said, what does Josh Mallerman have to do to win an, win an award? And I said... Well, apparently not go up against Jeff Vandermeer, but um, <laughs> there was, uh, I think it came out of the Stoker Awards where someone was saying, I think actually Mallerman in an interview, and I could be wrong about this, uh, I can't remember who said it, but someone said that like, you know, uh, something about how obviously the book, that the one book that we read is the one that deserves the award or something like that. Right, right, yeah. And um, that's kind of the feeling I have is like, of course I want Bird Box to win because I read it and loved it. But, I mean, and I read um, Vandermeer's book as well. Uh, and I love that too. Um, but the other ones, of course, they didn't have a chance because I didn't read those. So that, that was kind right. of a funny thing. I... <laughs> this is why we're not jurors for the Shirley Jackson. Exactly. Award, by the way, because we only read two out of the however many books are nominated. So. Right. No, and I certainly, I mean, I, I totally understand that reaction. I have that reaction to other awards where I see, like, their slates. You know, even though I've only read a few books, it's just a natural personal reaction because you've read the book and loved it. But, you know, getting having been a juror for a few years, you know, and, and seeing the other side, just seeing how much they get to read it. To me, that's, that's really good news that there is all this great dark fiction that's being published and also being published by a lot of major publishers. So to me, I, I, I feel like, you know, I said this somewhere, and I, I hope it's not hyperbole, but I do feel like we're living in a golden age of dark, horror, weird fiction, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's just so much exciting and really good stuff uh, being put out. You know, I'm just happy to play, you know, a small part of it or in it with my book. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I read a lot of horror as a, as a teenager and even in my early 20s, but it, it got to the point where it seemed like it was a lot of recycled. It got yeah, the same tropes over and over. And, and you're right, to a certain extent, we're seeing a lot of really, really original dark fiction um, again, which is nice because, you know what, it's, you know, the zombie thing, it's, it's a little played out now. It's really hard to deliver something original but then you go into um you know something like bird box or head full of ghosts and here's a here's a story we haven't read you know or a completely different take and it's not the same tropes that you're seeing over and over it's why i stepped away from horror for for a pretty good long time it just mm -hmm. felt like i'd read the sleeve and i go i already read this book in three other forms already i don't need to read it a fourth time you know so right I, mean, I, I do think it's almost a genre wide that, you know, including like, you know, crime in science fiction and fantasy. I mean, sort of, you know, what's categorized as genre fiction, I think, as sort of the, you know, I, I shouldn't say walls better for a better phrase. But I mean, as, as attitudes change, change and continue to change toward genre fiction, uh, I guess I'm talking about 
sort of the literary mainstream's attitudes towards genre as being innately um, inferior, right? I mean, for years that was sort of, I mean, that attitude is still there that, you know, there's genre fiction now that's innately inferior to straight literary fiction, but you can see those lines certainly being blurred more and more often in sort of uh, the high literary mainstream, whatever that is, you know, more accepting of genre fiction, you know, as, you know, they celebrate writers like Jeff Vandermeer and, and Kelly Link. So I, I think that's a, a direct correlation to the kind of really good work that you're, you're seeing. I think writers aren't afraid to mix horror with literary fiction or horror with crime or science fiction with horror or fantasy with with whatever. So to me, I mean, I, that's exciting. That's what interests me as a reader and a writer. I love, you know, obviously with all my books, I've taken genres and sort of mixed them together and tried to do different things. Now that you're saying that, I think Vandermeer's book is a great example of that because... It's really creepy and scary in certain parts, but it's definitely got a very strong sci-fi feel to it. Uh, but weird, I think, would be the overall kind of feel. Um, it's really difficult to like uh, put a label on there that'll stick. But um, yeah. but it definitely, I could see why it would win the award. So yeah, Vandermeer is a really great example of excellent writing, but in a in a style that's entirely something that he said, "I'm doing this my way." Yeah, no, absolutely. Here's the difference between me and Rob. You said sci-fi meets horror, and all I could think was Jason in outer space. That was a great movie, by the way, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> Rob comes up with something really, really thoughtful to say. And, so, anyway. Yeah, that would have been number like thirteen on my list if we kept going through all my favorite horror. <laughs> well, that's—I mean, you've probably seen a lot, so that's probably actually not a bad number. No, yeah, no, no, but. It's fine, my, you know, to bring my brother up again, my brother Dan, you know, he was all about, especially when he was younger as a teenager, he, you know, all about the Friday the 13th. And so that, even though, like, we bonded through horror, we also um, had strife through horror. Like, I would, you know, deride those movies and, you know, tell them that they were terrible. And, you know, I was more like of a monster movie kind of person or, you know, subtle supernatural kind of person. But, uh, you know, now that we're older, we, you know, if it's good horror, we're just excited that it's good. I think that's the way to be yeah <clears throat> we're gonna bring it down a little bit with, right. this, with this next yeah. um there's something that happens sometimes when you're when you're in a i guess for you it's more of like a career for us it's more of like a strong hobby um but kind of when you're in a world like this where uh i'm uh, uh, not a world when you're in a community like this where like we lose people and um when we interviewed josh mallerman it was like the day after rocky wood passed uh, who was, I think he was the president of the Horror Writers Association, right? Yes. Yep. So, so Josh was just like super tuned up uh, with emotion about that. Uh, and we just, uh, something else just happened recently. It was yesterday, or I think it was yesterday. Uh, yes. Tom Piccarilli passed, who I know that he's been battling uh, at least for a little over a year, maybe two years, something like that, with, uh, I believe it was brain cancer. And, and he just uh, passed yesterday. So I don't know if you had any thoughts um, on that, on, on, on Tom or anything you wanted to share? Sure, thanks. Yeah, I mean, uh, a terrible loss. He was first diagnosed with the brain tumors in uh, 2012, and um, he was given like a 2% chance or something when he was first diagnosed. And he, but, he, you know, he fought valiantly to the point where he went into full remission and he was still writing stories. He had sent Nick Mamatas, you know, a couple of stories for his great webzine, The Big Click. Um, but, you know, it, the... He had a stroke and then the um, the tumors came back, you know, fairly recently. And, you know, he, he died uh, yesterday and Saturday. So you know, I knew Tom. I'm, not, I'm certainly not as close with Tom as so many of my friends were. And it was actually kind of hard. Uh, I was glad I could be there for you know, my friend Jack Haringa, who was at ReaderCon this weekend, who is very close with Tom. Um, but you know, Tom was the kind of guy, if you wrote horror or crime, and especially if you wrote horror and crime, you, you, you know, you knew him. He was just... Um, a very approachable, generous guy. Uh, you know, I, I'd mentioned that, you know, how, for how many people can you say, you know, this person has written the perfect horror novel, which he did with a choir of ill children. And to me, he wrote a perfect noir uh, novella with every shallow cut, you know, not to mention like some of his other great crime novels, but to be in both horror and crime and, and some overlap of literary fiction, I would definitely say as well. You know, two very, I would say, you know, I, I love being a part of those communities, but, you know, we can certainly be contentious and paranoid and, you know, fight all the time. You know, and I've never 
never heard anyone speak a bad word about Tom as a person because he wasn't. He was just a great guy. Um, he was very supportive of my work, especially when I was, you know, trying to figure out what the heck I was doing with, you know, trying to write a crime novel with a little sleep. You know, he blurbed it and we exchanged a bunch of emails. And um, a lot of people are very sad this weekend, and rightly so, you know, because a great writer and a, you know, and a great person uh, passed away. It's a phenomenon that that I see only in my life uh, that has to do with books is is um, the level to which people respond and, and rally around um, their contemporaries and stuff like that. And um, yeah, my Facebook was just just jammed with um, how great of a person he was and how influential he was and stuff like that. So I, I'd say that the the writers of the world are very inspirational about how they emotionally connect with each other. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the privilege of community. I mean, I feel like it is a privilege to, to, to be able to know so many, you know, you know, talented and passionate people about, you know, the stuff that we like to do and what we like to read. Um, and so, some of the price of that privilege is that you, as you mentioned, uh, because the communities are getting bigger, that you're losing people that you know. Um, and, you know, I would only say, you know, I would search out, I'm sure there's tons of um Tons of essays being written about Tom, but I would certainly seek out Nick Mamatas's live journal. He's a nihilistic kid, but if you just Google Nick Mamatas, you, you'll come across it. His his uh, piece on Tom and what he meant to him in his own writing is you know very touching and very well written. Well, I'm thoroughly bummed out now. <clears throat> I guess we can. yeah. <laughs> That's the tough thing. Like you want to talk about the serious stuff, but then yeah. like you don't want to. It's like it's almost like the painful thing you don't want to do. I, um, our exposure to Tom Piccarelli has been um, uh, nil from a review standpoint on this podcast. I did read one of his books. God, I mean, maybe it's got to be uh, 12, 14 years ago. I was part of some – for a while I tried to get back into horror, and I remember reading something of his, maybe The Night Class. I don't know. Yeah. That was that far back. I was looking through the list, and I remember really liking it. But um, now that you said the perfect horror novel, I can't see how I can't spend one of these uh, lazy um, weeks of <laughs> podcasting and not uh, not pick that up with that type of recommendation. Yeah, I know. Acquireville Children, you know, I, I adore it. If you read the you know the blurbs in that book, it's people from all over the place. I mean, uh, it was funny. Not, I, you know, maybe I have an imperfect memory, but you know, for a while he was with Leisure Paperbacks writing. You know, these really sort of straight, not straightforward, but they would be classified as straightforward horror, not to say that his writing was straightforward, but then he wrote this really crazy, you know, and, uh, and it was published by Bantam, I believe, um, this really whacked out Southern Gothic noir, you know, acquired ill children. It's just so lyrical, and haunting and, and beautiful and, and disturbing, so disturbing. Uh, it was amazing. And then, you know, he just started, he, he started just writing crime essentially. And his crime novels were amazing. And I think one of Tom's, um, best attributes as a writer, you know, something I certainly aspire to is the empathy that he gives his characters. Um, I think that's what, that's, that's the job of a writer is to infuse empathy into characters that you don't sympathize with. I, I think that's the mark of a great writer that you want to understand this person or this character, you know, who isn't you, who isn't doing something that, you know, is right, but you want to understand why they're doing that. And Tom, I mean, Tom, certainly his, all his books featured empathetic, uh, empathetic characters and memorable empathetic characters. You brought up, I guess you didn't bring it up, but you talked about kind of crossing genres and now you have made that, um, that cross too. Do you find, um, I don't know how to say this. I, I, I thought about this, like James Patterson many years ago, um, went from writing, he had written all those uh, detective novels, the cross novels. And then he wrote what basically was kind of a romance book. And at the time, I guess that was part of the the start of his transition into the into the the the, the you know author mill that, that he's uh -huh. running now. Um, do you think that do you think that'll affect you as a writer of uh, writing in genre? So there are people who read just horror. I mean that's right. that's a thing, right? There are people who read just crime sure. um, and don't follow an author necessarily as much as they follow a genre. How do you think that? Yeah, how do you how do you plan on addressing that going forward in your career? I guess is, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I was definitely a lot more worried about it with a little sleep and no sleep to Wonderland because I knew I wasn't going to be writing narcoleptic, uh, narcoleptic detective novels you know my whole life. Um, I don't know, but now like they're sort of marketing or not sort of they did market uh, a head full of ghosts as a literary horror novel. Um, and my next book that's due with them. Uh, this summer, I have to pass it in the summer. I mean, 
um, you know, it's just supposed to be literary horror, you know, whatever that means. And to me, I, I feel like that's such a, a wide umbrella of possibilities that I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know it's a tough road to hoe. Uh, you know, one of my favorite novelists and, and you know, fortunately, he's a good friend, you know, Stuart Arnan. Uh, you know, when he started his career in the 90s, you know, he was telling me about how he went with his first seven novels. He had a, essentially a different agent with each novel because every agent wanted him to write sort of the same book that he had written the first time. And not only did he say no, he said, all right, I'm getting a different agent. Um, you know, it's a sort of it was a different publishing climate back in the 90s. And, you know, and it helps to be a genius like Stuart Arnan is to be able to do that. But. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt everything you said is true. I mean, uh, in terms of being, I guess, a recognizable author name because you're sort of working within the same genre the whole time. But I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. I'm just not. I'm just not wired that way as a as a reader and a writer. Um, I'm fortunate to have a full time job that is you know supportive of what I do, and you know I don't have that pressure of having to you know pay the mortgage or. You know, just solely on what I, I make from writing. So, I mean, I think if <laughs> if I think if I lost my job tomorrow, it's like, all right, you have to everything that you're going to be bringing into the house is going to be based on your writing. I think it'd be a different story. So, um, you know, I do. I feel like it almost it's a little bit of a luxury that I get to, I don't know, sort of do what I want, and hopefully that just keeps working. The the talk about literary, um, and also the the talk about living in different genres made me think of your boy Stephen Graham Jones in a big way. Because he was, um, I can't remember if it was an interview with us or somewhere, he said that basically literary means it's well-written. It's not really yeah. like its own genre. Yeah. Which, like, to me, that's what I explain. When I'm talking to people about books that, that aren't, um, for, you know, of, of our community, that's pretty much what I say. is like literary is just, you know, basically saying you wrote it well. Um, so I pulled that from him. But, yeah, totally. Sure. Steve, Jones is an example of a person where, like... Um, He's so fearless about just writing his way in in anything that um, I think that's why it works so well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was, Stephen's amazing, and uh, and I totally agree with what he says. I mean, but there's certainly baggage with the words literary and horror, and then you put them together, it's like double baggage. But I mean, even within the horror community, because well, first, you know, if you say horror, then there's a lot of people. Uh, there there are still people in the literary community who would. Uh, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't even, you know, look at that necessarily, but it also works the other way. I, I know of plenty of horror fans who use the word literary as a pejorative as though, you know, oh, what's this literary horror? You're putting on airs. You think you're better than what you are kind of thing. So, I mean, it has, you know, the genre sort of boundaries continue to blur. It's certainly by, it is by no means perfect. Um, or that blurring is not sort of completely erased everything. So there's still the baggage, but this is a long-winded way of saying that I do agree with Stephen. I mean, my sort of view of when I say literary, you know, hopefully it means that we're using, you know, character and voice, um, you know, the aspects of literary, you know, what you would call a, a good a good writing or a good story. But at the same time, literary fiction is a genre. I mean, it's marketed that way. You know, you get novels about <laughs> middle-aged men, you know, contemplating divorcing their wife. Isn't that that's, like a, that's kind of yeah. Every, that's how every, I always look at literary. There's no real yeah. story here, is what it means. Yeah. <laughs> nothing to see here. Move along. That's um, the fucked up thing that, um, like, when you're talking about genre in general, genre doesn't need to exist outside of our need to understand what I'm about to read. Say that again. Guess, Sorry, there's like totally motorcycles outside my apartment. Yeah, sure. But like the whole idea of genres doesn't necessarily need to exist outside of like if I go into a bookstore and I know I'm thinking I want to read this type of thing, I got to go to this section to get it. Like, oh, right, right. It's more of a marketing in my mind. I know this is like the most general I could possibly be about the idea of talking about genre, but like in a lot of ways, like it doesn't like when I'm reading it, I guess what I'm saying is when I'm reading a book, and I think Olivia said this before, I'm not thinking, oh, this is a great horror book. I'm thinking, oh, this is a great book. Right. No, actually, I mean, it definitely is. I mean, there's the marketing aspects. But at the same time, I mean, I do think horror is a genre. It has a history. Um, and especially having spent, you know, a weekend with, you know, a, a whole bunch of horror writers. I mean, th that's some of the fun for me going to conventions. You talk about the books that you like and how those have sort of influenced it. So, you know, I like to think of genre as this. You know, I mean, all literature and all art is this, but, for, you know, for the horror genres, there's this conversation. And when the conversation is started is obviously up for debate. But if you want to say 
it started with Polywolf, even if it started with Beowulf, but there's this, you know, conversation and, you know, you get to add to the conversation. Um, and hopefully, you know, with a head full of ghosts, you know, not only I wanted to add to the conversation with my own sort of take on it, but ho I hope that it would also sort of sort of change, you know, for people who have seen the movie The Exorcist or have read the book The Exorcist, not only do you, you know, are interested in my book, but it might make you think of that, uh, movie in that book in a different way or in a new light. Um, and to me, that's the exciting part about genre is you get to take a part of a, of this lineage. I don't know if that makes sense or not. <laughs> Definitely. I, and I, I do agree with you. I was being like, wait, I think I was being way too general. I think you are right about that. Um, I, I sometimes in my mind just fall into this little spiral of like loving the idea of genre labels and hating them. Um, and, no, usually, and usually I hate them when it's like, I, I see a genre label that seems unnecessary, then I hate the idea of like genres in general. So, um, yeah, that's my own personal struggle, I think, with the idea of genres. Right. No, I mean, I agree. Like, yeah, you know, no, I mean, there's an appeal of saying there is no genre. And um, no, I kind of feel like, you know, there's, there's both sides of that fence. Like, yes, there is no genre. There's a great story. But on the other hand, oh, if you want to look at a story uh, as a horror story and how it fits in the history of horror stories, I mean, to me, that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. But I agree. I mean, I sort of, I even chafe a little bit at sort of the want slash need to, to create like these new genres. Like, you know, within the horror community, there's this whole thing that, you know, to call things a new weird, et cetera, you know, which is fine. I mean, I like trying to look at things a new way. But um, sometimes I can't help but eye roll at some of that because I feel like it, I don't know, it complicates things or we're trying to rename things that already exist. All right. So you had mentioned a little bit about the next book. Um, you want to give us a quick 15 second? Can you give us a little synopsis on, on what's coming up next from uh, Mr. Tremblay? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a lot quieter of a story. Um, you know, I still think, you know, Headful of Ghosts is, um, this is obviously going past 15 seconds, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like Headful of Ghosts, there's a lot of sort of uh, pyrotechnics, you know, there's the blog post, there's certain different levels, and obviously there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Uh, anyway, this, this novel is a lot quieter. Um, and it, it opens with three teens, um, what are they, 13 going on 14, so they're seventh grade, going into eighth grade, it's late summer, uh, they sneak out of their parents' house uh, to go to the state park, a large state park, it's got like 20 miles worth of trails or so, so the three teens in the middle of the night, they sneak out to the state park, and uh, one of the teens disappears, doesn't come back, and it sort of goes from there. Um, yeah, so I'm having a hard time coming up with the elevator pitch for that book, <laughs> um, so I guess everyone's going to do their missing teen. No, that's what I've been saying, I guess. I do believe you talk a little bit more about that over on the This Is Horror podcast as well. So I will recommend um, anybody else who's interested in hearing more about Paul talking about horror in general, but also, um, well, I guess all of that, just listening to Paul talk more. Um, <laughs> that I really enjoyed that interview. I thought it was great. And it was, I, I like hearing other people besides me asking questions to authors. So um, I love I love the guys at This Is Horror, and I really recommend checking out that Uh that interview, but um, besides yeah, Dan and David, some guys. Yeah, I think actually part there's a part two coming out. I think this week. Yeah, uh, you see, that's that their release schedule really confuses me. So I didn't, I don't know if I remembered that there was a part two coming out, but that's even better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Paul, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that maybe we haven't mentioned yet uh, that you want to talk about before we head out? Ferg got married. That's right. Ferg got married. How did we not mention that on the podcast? He was texting me even today. Um, I don't know what to say about happy marriage. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, I guess, for, for Ferg. Yeah, congratulations. I think congratulations is the, the, the appropriate. Congratulations, Ferg. Yes, congratulations. No, they're very exciting. Very, they seem very happy. I, I stare at all of his Facebook wedding pictures at least twice a day. Wow. Well, there's a and horror story right there. It just got blocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you know what? A little bit confused because my my invite to the wedding might have got lost in the mail or something. I'm not sure, but um, definitely very happy. Sean's just one of the best people you'll ever meet. Oh, definitely. He's great. Paul, thanks for taking um, some time and some really enlightening points. You, you're always um, just a pleasure to talk. I feel like every time we've talked to you, I have walked away learning something, which isn't easy for someone who refuses to learn anything. So thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time tonight to talk to us. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, you guys are uh, – that's very nice of you to say. And 
you know, I enjoy listening to your podcast. You guys are fun. Uh, and you're very smart. I love what you guys have to say about books, especially my books when you like them. <laughs> okay. Once again, big thanks to Paul Tremblay for uh, coming on again and talking to us a little bit about Headful of Ghosts. If you're interested in hearing more, uh, check out our review of Headful of Ghosts, episode 101, our interview of Paul Tremblay, which is episode 103. And I'm saying Tremblay, not Tremblay. I apologize. Uh, he's also episodes 47 of This Is Horror. And then I guess he's got another one coming up because this guy is just all over our business. He is. And you know what? He's just so great to listen to. Um, I, I have not checked out his This Is Horror Part 1, but I'm definitely going to do that um, as soon as I can this week. Um, just a couple other things to mention. Um, in case you've forgotten, Noir at the Bar Chicago, July 22nd. That's uh, roughly a week from when you're hearing this at Sylvie's Lounge, 7 p.m., um, great readers. Uh, it's been a great time. The previous uh, two times we've uh, we've attended, um, we will be um, emceeing. Um, so uh, it's fun. Rob, I have some ideas for great MC stuff we're going to have to talk about offline. Um, Ooh, intriguing. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we'll see. It really, what it's going to be is Rob and I up there um, reading people's bios. But uh, we'll have great ideas. We just won't execute them. Um, but definitely stop out and uh, and check that out and say hello if you are a listener. Um, we'd appreciate it. And then, Rob, tell people what's coming up next on Booked. Uh, next is going to be our interview with author of the book New Yorked, Rob Hart. Rob Hart is a longtime uh, friend, sometimes combatant foe of the podcast, um, but uh, he also works over at Lit Reactor. He runs the, the education classes and stuff over there. So we're going to have him on next week. Um, so come back and listen to what he's got to say about, uh, I'm guessing, New York and a lot of other stuff like writing. We're going to make him answer for his love for New York, I think. Right, Livius? I think that's all we're going to talk about is New York. <laughs> we're going to get in a pizza fight. <laughs> that's right. Rob, make sure you do that, uh, that mob, that mob uh, voice that you do. Oh, I got to beat someone up now. That one, exactly. I think you should do the whole interview in that voice. Rob, tell me what you think about your new book. <laughs> it's what's with these books, huh? Uh, <laughs> Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.